Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. It is great to be back here reviewing more movies for you, or to be more specific, to talk about my favorite topic, which is movies. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. These are movies that came out this week. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Malcolm and Marie. This is the latest movie that was written and directed by Sam Levinson. And even though Sam Levinson sounds like a veteran director's name, probably because his name sounds a lot like Barry Levinson, I don't know if the two are related, but he's directed a couple of movies before this. He directed one in 2011 called Another Happy Day and another one in 2018. And I didn't, uh, the 2011 movie I haven't seen, but the 2018 movie I have, it was one called Assassination Nation, which was a farcical movie that was very violent. I saw this back in 2018 when it was a brand new movie, and I didn't really think it was anything special. It obviously felt like Sam Levinson, as a writer and director, was trying to do something special or something similar to Quentin Tarantino, but he didn't really succeed in that regard. But Malcolm and Marie does not seem like a wannabe auteur movie. It really seems like the real thing. It also feels like a one-act play because there are only two people who act in this movie, Zendaya and John David Washington. John David Washington plays a movie director who's actually beginning to get some success in Hollywood, and Zendaya plays his girlfriend. And the movie details their relationship being tested after they return home from his movie career and await critics' responses. And it's it's very interesting because um, th- this movie, as I said, feels like a one-act play. It certainly has some influence from the likes of certain playwrights such as Edward Albee or Eugene O'Neill, just to name a few. It also has hints of the movie and the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. You can definitely see a lot of elements in that. And this movie is primarily uh, dialogue-based. In other words, there aren't a lot of things that happen, or rather actions that take place, certain climaxes. The, The story, and for that matter, the climax, pretty much all take place within the dialogue. There is a lot of moving around, as you might expect. And in this movie, John David Washington and Zendaya are wandering around this very nice house, which you learn later was actually uh, rented out to John David Washington's character, whose name is Malcolm. Uh, Of course, the movie's named Malcolm and Marie. Uh, It's rented out to Malcolm by the production company um, with whom he's working in this movie. And there is some tension in regards to the director finding out the first-run reviews, particularly from one uh, white female critic from the Los Angeles Times. And there's also a lot of tension between John David Washington and Zendaya, Malcolm and Marie, respectively, when you ultimately find out, without seeing the movie, 
what the theme of the movie within Malcolm and Marie is. And you learn through the dialogue that the movie is about a woman of color who had issue or who had problems with drug and alcohol abuse. And you learn a little later that admittedly from Malcolm that this story was based on his wife, Marie. Oh, excuse me, not his wife, his girlfriend. Yeah, they're not married yet, but um, as you watch this film and you see their relationship certainly hit a pivotal point, and pivotal pivotal is not necessarily a good thing, you kind of wonder if they are even going to progress in their relationship, especially when you find out that at this movie premiere, which you never see, that Malcolm gave an acceptance speech or at least um, a concession speech and did not thank his girlfriend for the inspiration. And even when Zendaya is not willing to admit that, there still is that tension there. And frankly, who could blame Zendaya in this movie as Marie for feeling slighted? There are all these issues that are coming out. And what's fascinating about Malcolm and Marie is this film, unlike most other films, was um, filmed, pre-produced, and post-produced during COVID or during the pandemic. And the the filmmakers worked with a, a very limited crew because that was really all they could do. But... Despite that, this movie is nothing short of fascinating. And honestly, even without COVID, I couldn't see a better way to film this movie than the way it's filmed. It gets rid of all pretense, very much like, very much unlike uh, Sam Levinson's previous film, Assassination Nation. In fact, even though Assassination Nation didn't make a lot of lists of the worst films of the year, I still thought it was way too over the top and trying way too hard. And even three years after it came out, nobody's talking about it. So I would be right in that assertion. But this movie seems like one that director Sam Levinson was really wanting to make, whereas Assassination Nation felt a lot more formulaic and a lot less purposeful, if, if that makes sense. So in addition to that, I don't think this movie would have been nearly as compelling without great performances by Zendaya and John David Washington. As a matter of fact, while John David Washington did have one uh, lead role before this in Black Klansman, which I thought was one of the, which was, I, I counted it as the second best film of 2018, the first being Hereditary. But John David Washington certainly can carry this film, but Zendaya herself turns in the best performance of her career. If you watch her in this movie and you're familiar with her previous work, not just in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in the Spider-Man films, but also in uh, on her uh, Disney Channel show, which I've never seen, I don't think you're going to remember the the kitty stuff she used to do. And she's definitely up there with Ariana Grande and Zac Efron as somebody who definitely have shed their 
Disney Channel past or that clean cut image, if you will. But then again, I haven't seen any of uh, Zendaya's Disney Channel stuff, so I can't exactly say how clean cut it is. But considering it's Disney, it probably is to a certain extent, or at least it's sugarcoated. And there are other Disney Channel alum like Shia LaBeouf and Miley Cyrus who really work hard to shed that stigma of being a Disney Channel kid. In my opinion, they work way too hard, and they and in doing so, they haven't quite shed that or gotten rid of that stigma. But Zendaya is definitely the, one of those actresses who certainly has, and she sells every piece of dialogue in this film, every movement, every <laughs> everything, really. And even though she and Do- John David Washington do their share of fighting in this film, they still have a remarkable amount of chemistry. I say remarkable because I've seen Zendaya in the Spider-Man movies like Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home, the latter of which they tried to establish a relationship between Peter Parker, who is uh, Tom Holland's, uh, Holland's character, and her character, who's, who's known as MJ, but she's not Mary Jane Watson. Um, in, in fact, I think her, her name was established in Spider-Man Homecoming as Michelle, but the, the point is that she and Tom Holland had next to no chemistry in that movie, and there wasn't that necessary sexual tension, I think, to, to bring Spider-Man Far From Home from good to great. But that sexual tension, in addition to several other tensions, which I won't reveal, are certainly present in Malcolm and Marie. In addition to that, they bring up a lot of great, basically, tension from success, particularly in John David Washington's case being a black director in Hollywood and the pressures that come with that and and having to live up not only to Spike Lee and Barry Jenkins and other celebrated African-American directors, but also trying to create his own voice. It's all in there. Malcolm and Marie, I was I was excited about, I'll be honest with you, but I try not to get too excited about movies that I'm about to see because sometimes when I get too excited, I get let down. So I went into this film preparing to be disappointed, and I also was skeptical of Sam Levinson, particularly after Assassination Nation. But Malcolm and Marie lived up to its hype, in my opinion, and it gets my rating of a knockout. It is a very smart film. It has the right kinds of tension. And you are invested in the characters that you see on the screen, even when you might not necessarily like them or agree with what they do. But certainly, this is a film that I actually refuse to watch with my girlfriend. A lot of times when I'm watching a new movie, I invite my girlfriend along, but this time, it's about a... uh, contentious relationship, and I didn't want that to bleed into my own relationship. So I watched it alone. It's one of those films that I don't regret watching alone because, as I said, I I don't want any of these problems to bleed into my own relationship, and I hope my relationship doesn't get the way that it is in this film. But it's still a great movie. Zendaya was fantastic. John David Washington really sold it. And director Sam Levinson has certainly redeemed himself 
from the less-than-stellar Assassination Nation. to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bliss. This is a movie that is an Amazon Prime original, and it stars Owen Wilson, and this is actually his first movie in three years, and Salma Hayek. It's directed by a director by the name of Mike Cahill, who is a relatively young director. He's, he's about 41. And he's from New Haven, Connecticut. His previous uh, directing efforts before this include Another Earth from 2011 and I Origins from 2014. He's also directed episodes of TV series such as Night Flyers, Rise, The Path, and Magicians. I haven't seen any of those movies or TV shows, so Bliss is my very first introduction to Mike Cahill who also wrote the film, and it is a mind-bending love story following a gentleman by the name of Greg, played by Owen Wilson, who, after recently being divorced and then fired, meets the mysterious Isabel, played by Salma Hayek. And Isabel is a woman living on the streets and convinced that the polluted, broken world around them is a computer simulation. This movie certainly has a lot in common thematically with The Matrix. As a matter of fact, I think it borrows a little too much and a little too liberally from The Matrix. And you can't imagine Owen Wilson being in the role of Neo, Keanu Reeves' character, in The Matrix. I I can't imagine how that is. Just hearing Owen Wilson's voice in Keanu Reeves' character... Morpheus? I, I, I just can't see it. And I did actually like the first and second uh, acts of this film. The third act, the final act, was when the movie kind of fell apart and was really approaching some good ideas, but at the end, things got really confusing. There were supporting characters who did things that were way out of character, And the movie kind of ended like some sort of romantic drama, which I didn't think was particularly appropriate for the the theme here. So I don't quite know exactly where to start with what's wrong with this movie. I did like when Owen Wilson and Salma Hayek were working together uh, in the first part, and Owen Wilson begins to believe... Salma Hayek's character that their world is a simulation and not everything is what it seems. The Matrix was not the first film to explore this kind of uh, story arc, but they did do it the best. But this film definitely felt like The Matrix with probably about one-tenth of the special effects of The Matrix. And, And that is fine, but... I really wish the movie had stuck more to its 
original ideas and maybe not had Owen Wilson and Salma Hayek's characters take pills in order to explore what is real, like they did in The Matrix. And there's also, you're introduced to Owen Wilson's character. He's in an office building. He actually works for a company called Technical Difficulties, where you have to tell the person on the other end of the line, we're sorry you're experiencing technical difficulties. And when the company is called Technical Difficulties and the representative on the phone is supposed to say that, then the apology becomes rhetorical. But that's not my problem with the movie. But you you learn that he is ultimately slacking off at his job. He is drawing pictures of this house that's in his head, but it is so vividly in his head that he's able to draw very detailed pictures. But he's not doing his job. In addition to that, he's also lamenting uh, divorcing his wife. And he has a daughter in this movie whose name is Emily, who's played by Nesta Cooper, an, an actress I haven't seen in very many other things, but she is good in this film, who's also trying to locate her father and get her get him to go to her high school graduation or graduation of some of, of some sort. I will, I will, I'm not sure if Nesta Cooper or rather Emily was supposed to be uh, a high school student or a college student. Sometimes at that, <laughs> when, when somebody is 25 years old, they can still play a college student. So I wasn't entirely sure there. But the movie, again, falls off the rails when you have the two characters, um, Owen Wilson and Salma Hayek's characters, actually leave their bleak world and go into the, the real world, um, w- which you realize is just a graphic simulation. Again, way too similar to The Matrix. And there were actually a few neat cameos. For one, uh, Bill Nye, as in Bill Nye the Science Guy, plays a scientist in this movie, which I thought would have been the film's saving grace, but it wasn't. Actually, when Bill Nye is introduced, through no fault of his own, because Bill Nye is actually pretty good in this movie, the rest of the film kind of falls apart. There's some contrived conflict in this film that feels more like a deus ex machina than it does a real plot development. And the the ending of this film doesn't really make sense. There's another film that I thought started out very promising in the first act. The second act, it kind of fell off the rails, and the third act, it completely went off the track. That film was Downsizing, starring Matt Damon. It started out with a great concept, and and certainly one that is really accessible science fiction, and then it kind of forgets its roots. It forgets its science fiction roots, and... The characters end up doing things that fly in the face of common sense. And I feel like that is certainly the case with the characters in this movie, Bliss. And I do have to give Salma Hayek a lot of credit because she is getting out there and playing challenging roles. But with the exception of Frida... Dogma, and a couple of other films, some of the films where she's gone against type, not playing the sex symbol, have just not worked. 
And one of the primary examples of a film she did that just flat out didn't work was a film that I saw at the movie theaters right before COVID-19 hit. And that movie was Like a Boss, co-starring Tiffany Haddish and Rose Byrne. That was a tone-deaf comedy, which really should have worked because I like all three of those actresses and I've seen them be funny in other comedies, but uh, for some reason that, that movie was just, uh, I, I could see Salma Hayek trying her best, but that movie just didn't work for a variety of reasons. And I feel like this film bliss is a step up from like a boss in several ways, but there are too many similarities to the matrix to make this movie work. It's not Owen Wilson or Salma Hayek's fault in this film. I commend both of them for going against type and being in a a different movie. The problem is the movie itself. The story definitely falls apart in the third act, and for that reason, Bliss gets my rating of a strikeout. There is a way to make a film about the world not being what it seems, without making it a flagrant ripoff of The Matrix. And while this movie wasn't as special effects heavy as The Matrix, there were still way too similar, too many similarities that some of the producers should have caught. And if they did catch it, and they still released this film as it was, shame on them. But this film should have gone a little bit more into drama, uh, in, rather than science fiction. And also, the the third act should have been a lot stronger and maybe not as action-filled as it was because all the action in the third act, which I won't give away, just felt very forced. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is one that's called All My Friends Are Dead. This is a film that is categorized by IMDb as a comedy, crime, drama. And this movie, talk about a film that goes off the rails, this one certainly does. It's a Polish film that kind of feels like an American film. Actually, as I was watching it, I was reminded a little bit of movies like Can't Hardly Wait or American Pie, but the characters in this film are far more pathetic than characters who are in those other American films from 20-plus years ago that I just mentioned. All My Friends Are Dead is a Polish film. I could say the Polish title of this film, but that would be way too much work, and I don't know a word of Polish. It's directed by and written by a filmmaker by the name of Jan Belkel, and <laughs> he is a Slovenian director, so he comes from <laughs> the same place that Melania Trump does. But I believe that everyone in this film, all the actors, are 
Polish. And I have not seen any of these actors in any other films previously. And I would tell you the the names of the characters and what actors who, uh, who play them are, but honestly, I'm not going to do that because a lot of them are Polish names for one, so I would be struggling to read them. But primarily, the reason I'm not going to read you these names is because all the characters in this movie are stereotypes. And all of them do things that fly in the face of common sense. So when the movie opens, it opens on New Year's Day, and we're introduced to a detective who is surveying basically a bloodbath that happens at a New Year's Eve party. Almost everybody at this party on New Year's Day are dead. And that's not spoiling anything. This happens in the very first scene of the film. The movie then cuts back to the night before, i.e. New Year's Eve, to tell you exactly how these people died. So the fact that IMDb lists this as a comedy first is a challenge because when you go into a house and you see dozens of people dead on the floor from a variety of uh, causes of death and there's an axe in the wall, as there is in this first scene, I don't know if it's particularly funny how these people died. But I give the movie a chance anyway, and we're introduced to a variety of characters, and most of the guys in this movie are just frat boy douchebags. I really mean that. There's one guy who I think has the house to himself, and it might be his parents' house, who is wearing this ugly Christmas sweater, which is not inappropriate for a New Year's Eve party, but it's not what he wears, it's what he does. And he acts a lot like Stifler from the American Pie films, the Sean William Scott movie, but what really makes him a deplorable character, (coughs) excuse me, is when a pizza guy comes with at least 10 pizzas He has so many pizzas he can't see over the top pizza. This guy takes the pizza and does not pay the delivery guy for them, even though he has money in his pocket. I'm I'm not going to... But what's even more fascinating is that the pizza guy himself just stands there waiting. If I was the pizza guy, and especially if I was delivering to a house on New Year's Eve... And my boss was calling me on my cell phone wondering where the hell I was. I would go into that party, unplug the DJ machine and say, listen up. I just delivered 15 pizzas. I need to be paid now. Instead, this pizza boy who was stiffed, I'll give you that, just goes around to people who are clearly drunk or stoned and asks them where the person who pays for the pizza is. And also, he could have called his boss and said, you know, listen, I'm being stiffed right now. These people are not paying me. He could have even called the police. Hello, he has a cell phone. And that's just one of the things that flies in the face of logic in this movie. Another thing is when there's a girl, or a woman, I should say, who's in the study of the guy who owns the house, who's who's not um, at home with these people, Otherwise, this party probably wouldn't be going on. 
She looks around and she finds a gun and she takes the gun out of the case and puts the clip in the, the thing with the bullets and she's, you know, pointing it jokingly at her boyfriend. But when the two of them have sex on the guy's desk, which, you know, again, you'd expect that at this kind of frat party, the woman still has the gun in her hands. And I'm thinking, what the hell is wrong with you? She doesn't seem drunk either. I mean, if she were drunk, that would at least be a, a somewhat plausible explanation for her, um, her having this gun and fooling around with it because she's not in her right mind. But again, as the two of them are having sex on the desk, she is holding the gun in her right hand and you know, somebody's going to die in this party and you know, right then and there that this is the first way they die. In addition, the person she kills is not a particularly likable person. So when he dies, it's, it's not shocking. It's not thrilling. And there isn't that necessary tension. Plus when the person dies, and I'm not going to say who, because I gave you a vague recollection of some of the characters here or or some of their uh, stereotypes, the boyfriend and the woman with the gun try to hide his body. And when somebody sees the guy on the floor, clearly dead, she's wondering innocently, oh, what's going on here? And you have to see the movie to, to realize how stupid this woman is. And she even says, what's that on the floor? And the guy who's trying to hide the body says, oh, that's just ketchup which doesn't make any sense. If you see something red on the floor and somebody's passed out, that's never a good sign. And the people in this movie should have used common sense, particularly where you have a guy who's dead. He died accidentally. You could have explained to the police what exactly happened. And if you had, you know, sucked it up and gone through the trial of the death of this guy, it would have eventually been ruled accidental. I know it's not that cut and dry and it's not that easy, but what happened in here clearly was an accident. And what the ways that these people try to hide the body are just really forced slapstick. And I could describe to you all the rest of the characters. For instance, there is a Mormon missionary who's (laughs) at the party who's not even Polish. He's actually French. And what he's doing at the party and what he was expecting the party to be, I don't know. Nothing in this movie makes sense. And for a movie whose genre is listed first as comedy, it's not funny either. I thought it would have been kind of a whodunit or something to that nature. But I found myself actually turning the movie off after an hour because I flat out didn't care about these characters. I would have expected better from a Polish film. All My Friends Are Dead is a movie that I thought, based on some of the archetypes and stereotypes that I see in this movie that seem to be more stereotypical towards Americans than Polish people, I would have thought that an American company would have taken this movie and remade it in a heartbeat. I think there is potential for um, an American company to remake this movie, but not because it's good, because it is bad and it needs significant improvement. And I could go on and on about what's wrong with All My Friends Are Dead. But 
truthfully, this film is a stri- uh, a flunk out. It, it's a flunk out because all the characters in this movie are stereotypes. They're either unbelievably stupid or they are their actions and their world experiences don't make sense for what they do in this movie. And I'm not just talking about the people who are killed or who do the killing either accidentally or not. I'm also talking about well-intentioned people in this movie who come off as complete stereotypes. All my friends are dead is just a dead film. It actually reminded me very much of very bad things, which is another black comedy. And by black comedy, I mean a dark comedy about a party gone wrong. When the thing that happens at the party goes wrong, the, the movie just stops being funny. And it actually really wasn't all that funny to begin with, but all my friends are dead, just misfires on so many cylinders and is overall a bad movie. And the first terrible movie of 2021. to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time to take a look at what movies are coming out on streaming on various apps. Not just Netflix, but I'll, I'll start with Netflix first. On Monday, February 8th, uh, actually, iCarly Seasons 1 and 2 are going to be uh, premiering on Netflix. If you're interested in watching that, I've seen parts of that show, but it was never a show for me, but it is kind of mind blowing to think that the kids who watched iCarly when, when they were kids are now college age. I am just getting old, but one of the films that will be premiering on Netflix, which is not a Netflix original is a film that is called war dogs and war dogs is a film that kind of like bliss Started out pretty good, but ended up, even though it's based on a true story, with uh, the main characters doing very illogical things. It is, it's based on a true story, but it's loosely based on a true story. It's about two young men who won a $300 million contract from the Pentagon to arm America's allies in Afghanistan. And they... lucked out. This is a film that is directed by Todd Phillips. And if Todd Phillips name sounds familiar, it is because he is the director of such films as the hangover and old school. And he also produced the movie, the uh, Joker last year with Joaquin Phoenix. He actually directed that film as well. 
He actually directed all three Hangover movies. War Dogs was a bit of a departure from him. And while War Dogs was good, it wasn't great. The movie stars uh, Miles Teller and Jonah Hill, who were big there for a while but don't seem to be making very many films recently. But I thought the ending of the film was where the movie just didn't quite work. But I do think it's an interesting story. But there was a lot that was... That, that could have been a little bit more polished, I should say. So that's what's coming out on Monday, February 8th on Netflix. On Wednesday, February 10th, there's actually a couple of films, uh, two Netflix originals and one non-Netflix original. Uh, the first one is called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. That is uh, not a movie, but a docuseries. But docuseries, if they are limited, are fair game on this show. So The Vanishing at Cecil Hill, uh, also known as Crime Scene, is about a college student and tourist by the name of Eliza Lamb who vanishes, leaving behind all of her possessions in her hotel room. The Cecil Hotel grows in infamy. I can't exactly tell you where the Cecil Hotel is. I don't know if it's an American hotel or one in Western Europe or somewhere else. But a story about a vanishing college student, I'm in. So this is a film or a docuseries I might see for next week's show. Don't hold me to it, but I will let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. The other movie... This is a movie that will be premiering on Netflix that is a Netflix original. It's called The Misadventures of Hetty and Coke Man. Uh, Hetty is spelled H-E-D-I. That sounds like a foreign film because I don't know any Americans who would have that um, name. And sure enough, it is a foreign film. Uh, It's actually called En Passant Pecho, which translates in English to... Uh, I don't know what, <laughs> but it's directed by uh, Julian Holland, whose nationality is not known to me. My guess is this is Spanish or Portuguese. I don't know which. It might be a Brazilian film. It looks like a buddy comedy, but that's really all I can tell you right now. The uh, website is not giving me very much information other than that. But there is another film that will be will be appearing on Netflix on Wednesday, February 10th. And that movie is called The World We Make. And I don't know too much about that film. I can tell you that is a 2019 film. And even though I went to the movies constantly in 2019, I missed this one. It is a movie that stars nobody that I know particularly. The actors in the movie include Caleb Castile, Rose Reed, and Kevin Sizemore, who I'm not familiar with. It's about an 18-year-old named Lee who is a spirited equestrian and Jordan, an academic and football standout, who are at the threshold of building a life together, but their character is tested when racial bias surfaces in their otherwise progressive small town. And just so you know, Caleb Castile is black and Rose Reed is white. So you see a lot more movies these days about which involve mixed race couples, but 
the films about mixed race couples from the 60s to the 90s used to be primarily about the tensions that come in between mixed race couples. You don't see a lot of those films anymore, which I think indicates progress, but I'm not against films that are about complexities that arise from mixed race relationships. So I don't know how this movie's going to be. I'm not familiar with any of the actors or the directors or the writers of this film, but if I see it, I will let you know what I think on next week's show. On Thursday, February 11th, there are actually a number of films that are going to be premiering. One of them is called Leila Manjnan. Let me see if I can find that one. Uh, Leila Majnun. Uh, okay, here it is. This is a foreign film. My guess is that it is Indian, and I am correct. Um, while in Azerbaijan, Layla, an Indonesian scholar, the titular character, falls for Samir, an, ad, ad, an admirer of her work, but her arranged marriage stands in the way. I incorrectly said that The White Tiger was a Bollywood film, but this seems a lot more like a Bollywood film. This seems to have the same kind of soap opera-like plot. It also seems to have that same sort of Romeo and Juliet type feel, which is common in several romantic Bollywood films. I don't think I'll be seeing that one, but if you want to see it, it's going to be premiering on Netflix. Layla Majnun is... On Thursday, February 11th, there is another Netflix original. There are actually, my God, there are, there are three original films that are going to be premiering on Thursday, February 11th. Leila Majnun is one. There's another one that's called Red Dot, which I don't think is the story of the 7-Up Dot. But if it was, I'd totally see it. No, Red Dot is actually a live-action film about a woman by the name of Nadja who becomes pregnant and her and her lover make an attempt to rekindle their relationship by traveling to the north of Sweden for a hiking trip, but soon their romantic trip turns into a nightmare. This is classified as a drama and thriller, and there's nobody that I know particularly in this movie, but uh, Red Dot, by the way, refers to the, the laser pointer that's, on, that's usually on an assault rifle. So that makes this film particularly interesting. This looks like one that I probably would see. I can't guarantee that I will see it, but I will let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. There's another film that's going to be premiering on Thursday, February 11th, and it's called Squared Love, another foreign film. From where, I don't exactly know. The director of this film is named Philippe Z... Zilber, Zalber, and he is Polish. So my presumption is that this is a Polish film. This is a movie about a celebrity journalist and renowned womanizer who starts to rethink his life choices after he falls for a mysterious model who leads a double life. This sounds like an original film, and I would be actually very interested to see it. I'm not going to describe in detail the poster of this movie, but it certainly holds my attention, and <laughs> it, it sounds like a romantic comedy, and I think that actually 
foreign romantic comedies tend to be better than American ones, or they at least tend to be less formulaic. So Squared Love is a movie I might see for you next uh, week. But I can't hold myself to it, but I'll put it on my list, and I will see it if I can. And on Friday, January 12th, there are going to be actually two films that are going to be premiering. One of them is going to be called To All the Boys, Always and Forever. Now, I don't know, or actually, I do know what this is a sequel to. Uh, It's a sequel to the movie To All the Boys I Loved Before, which came out three years ago. And I've heard a lot about that film, but I haven't actually seen it. So because of that, I have a rule on words on film that if there is a movie out there that is a sequel, I have to see the original one first before I see the sequel. Otherwise, I'll be lost. But in To All the Boys, Always and Forever, this is where the girl from the previous film, whose name is Lana Condor, that's the actress, and she plays a woman named Lara Jean, Uh, And it is continuing, the movie is continuing the romantic life of the teenage girl and facing her good and hard times with her friends and family. That is a very vague uh, storyline, but this is a romantic drama, a romantic comedy drama, I should say. So this is one I will probably be skipping, but if you're interested in, in watching it, the movie is called To All the Boys, Always and Forever, and is premiering on Netflix on Friday February 12th. There's one other film that's premiering on Netflix, which is a Netflix original, and it's called Zico's Journey. Zico, by the way, is spelled X-I-C-O, which I assume is pronounced like a Z in English. This is a film that is a foreign film. Yeah, Netflix invests in a ton of foreign films, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um... But this is actually an animated one, interestingly enough. It's about a girl, a dog, and her best pal who set out to save a mountain from a gold-hungry corporation. But the key lies closer to home with her sidekick pup, Zico. There is no one who is a voice actor in this film who I know particularly. And my guess is... Those of you who are listening to me uh, who are fluent in English probably don't know them either, but I am always down for animated films, and this one looks particularly interesting. Its its name, by the way, its English name is Zico's Journey. Its name in Spanish is El Camino de Hico. Looks interesting, and that seems like a movie that I will be reviewing for you next week because I tend not to miss the animated films that come out. But let's see uh, what else is coming out next week on other streaming platforms. And I'm going to limit this to uh, streaming platforms to which I subscribe. So the next one I'm going to cover is Disney+. And interestingly enough, there is a film that I remember seeing on TV when I was in the eighth grade and it is premiering on Disney plus, but it is not a Disney plus original. It is however, a Disney TV movie from the wonderful world of Disney. It is Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. 
a Broadway play that has been made into a TV movie before, but this one has a multiracial cast. It starred Brandy, or Brandy Norwood, as Cinderella, and it stars it co-stars Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother. And I remember, I didn't see this all the way through, but maybe I will uh, when it premieres. But I won't be reviewing it on the show because the movie is now 23 or 24 years old. It also co-stars Bernadette Peters as Cinderella's stepmother because there's no way that Bernadette Peters could be Brandy's real mother. Just saying. Uh, Jason Alexander as the king's servant Lionel. You also have um, Whoopi Goldberg as Queen Constantina, Victor Garber as King Maximilian, and the prince, Christopher, uh, played by a Filipino actor named uh, Paolo Montalban. And, and I haven't seen uh, Paolo Montalban in very many other things, but he is apparently still acting after all these years. His last credit was a movie called The Girl Who Left Home, which came out in 2020. But anyway... If you want to check out the remake of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella from 1997, it will be premiering on Disney Plus on Friday, February 12th. There are actually no other films that are going to be premiering on Disney Plus uh, on next Friday. There is a season two premiere of Inside Pixar. There's the first season of Life Below Zero, The Next Generation which might look like an interesting um, docuseries. There's also a series called Marvel Battle World, Mysteries, Mystery of the Thanos Stones. I'm not sure. I, I'm totally not familiar with the comic book there. And there's also another one called Marvel's Behind the Mask, which the computer is not telling me whether or not that is a movie, a documentary, or a series. My guess is... It isn't a series because they didn't say season one or season two, but I can't tell you very much about Marvel's Behind the Mask. All I can tell you is that it will be appearing on Disney Plus on Friday, February 12th. The only thing is that it is not a Disney Plus original. So let's move on from Disney Plus. Let's actually look at what's going to be appearing on HBO Max. And this is, this is actually really cool. There is one film that is going to be premiering on HBO, which is an HBO original film. If it had not been for COVID, this movie would have come out in theaters. The movie is called Judas and the Black Messiah. This movie I'm very excited to see, and I will go out of my way to see this. Actually, I won't go too out of my way because I do have access to HBO Max. And Judas and the Black Messiah tell the story of Fred Hampton, who was chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party and his fateful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. I know a little bit about the Black Panthers, but I don't know a ton. I'm vaguely familiar with Fred Hampton. I'm not quite as familiar with him as I am Huey P. Newton or Stokely Carmichael. But Fred Hampton in this movie is played by Daniel Kaluuya, best known for his lead role in Get Out, 
for which he was nominated for an Oscar. And he's been in several other films, including Black Panther, since Get Out. And interestingly enough, the actor who plays Bill O'Neill is Lakeith Stanfield, who plays a small role in the movie Get Out, but a very, very memorable one because he's the actor or the character who screams Get Out when Daniel Kaluuya's character takes a photo of him and accidentally forgets to turn off the flash. It's a very memorable scene from an incredible movie that is still amazing after all these years. And interestingly enough, who else is co-starring in this movie but Lil Rel Howery. Howery. Excuse me, let me say that name again. Lil Rel Howery, who in Get Out plays Daniel Kaluuya's character's best friend and probably the best best friend in movie history. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, see the ending to Get Out. Or actually, you know what? Don't just see the ending. See the whole movie. <laughs> because, yeah, Lil Rel Howery is, is indeed the best best friend ever, particularly how he comes through for Daniel Kaluuya's character at the very end of the film. Those of you who've seen the movie know exactly what I'm talking about. Other actors who co-star in the film include Jesse Plemons, who plays a guy named Roy Mitchell. And Jesse Plemons is a white actor, so you know damn well he's not playing um, a Black Panther. But he's probably either playing an FBI informant or maybe a hippie. I don't know. But then again, Jesse Plemons is a little too old to play a hippie. But interestingly enough, they got Martin Sheen to play J. Edgar Hoover in this movie. So... There are some other actors here, but none of them are as familiar as the actors I just mentioned. But Judas and the Black Messiah is a film, hand to God, I will see next Friday. And I will know ex- I will tell you exactly what I think about it on next week's show. So, that is what's coming out on Friday, February 12th on HBO Max. And... There's actually another film that will be making an appearance on HBO Max, but it's not an original film from HBO. It's a movie that's called Dunkirk, which came out in 2017, directed by Christopher Nolan, was brought to theaters in 70mm, and even though that didn't work for Quentin Tarantino for his film The Hateful Eight, it certainly did work for Dunkirk. Dunkirk was a critical and commercial success. I think that Dunkirk should have won best picture at the Oscars. I thought it was the second best film of 2017. The best film of 2017, in my opinion, was Detroit, but the Academy just ignored that film. That's another story for another time. What won instead of Dunkirk was actually The Shape of Water, directed by Guillermo del Toro, which I thought was a serviceable movie. I wouldn't have said that it deserved to win best picture, but With that said, it was in my top five favorite films of 2017. I just thought Dunkirk was more deserving of that. And I will say this, when you see Dunkirk on HBO Max, if you have HBO Max, see this movie in high definition if you can. If you have one of those fancy schmancy TVs that's 4K, this is one of those films that is worth seeing in 4K. I was privileged enough to see this in theaters, again, in 70mm, as opposed to the usual 35mm, and it looked incredible. Plus, it's a very gripping film. 
So anyway, those are some of the films that will be making an appearance or flat out premiering on HBO Max on uh, Friday, February 12th. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.